Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. I hope you are all doing very well. Uh, today is a live chat uh, episode, which means I will be taking questions only from the live chat. This is something I've not done in several months. So let's do that again. But before we do that, let's see who all is there with us. I can see Dharmil, Vladimir, Adityanath. That name always makes me smile. Vladimir, Adityanath. Uh, Tejas, Abotani, Aditya, Sachin, Mohit, Kasta, Jeevana, Abhishek, Dityahar, Raju, Monish, Bajayanti, Abhishek, Durga, Pratham, Atharva, Bai, Manthan, Swankit, Ajit, Flos, Karmeli, I'm Rage, Priyanshi, Akshit, Kalyan, Lus, Lus, Nikhil, Swapnil, Skar, Ronak, Changumangu, <laughs> Gaurav, Leo, Abhi, Vidyarthi, Akshit, Mitesh, Krishna, Aditya, Aditya, again Aditya, Amar, RV, Ronak, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. I hope you're doing very well. So with that done, let us take some questions from the live chat. Who all is there in the live chat and what are the questions how about this question? So today, let's deal with something other than geopolitics and history. We can do some history also, but tomorrow is going to be the geopolitics session. So let's take some other questions today. For instance, this one. Anirudh says, what's your view on the use of psychedelics like DMT and their significance in human life? Uh, well, I personally have no experience with the psychedelics like DMT or any other psychedelics, but uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, psychedelics induce certain mental states in a person's mind psychedelics like dmt i don't i don't remember the the full form of dmt uh there are things like cannabis and various other psychedelics as well these are all natural plant-based herbal psychedelics that we are talking about uh psilocybin mushrooms also so these induce various kinds of altered states of consciousness in the human mind uh, you're in a, some kind of trance or you, you're in some kind of parallel world. You see visions, you hear things that may not exist in the real world and that sort of thing. And some people, most people apparently have good experiences with DMT, with psilocybin mushrooms, uh, even with something like ayahuasca, which uh, people in, uh, which the native people of uh, South America, in various parts of South America, they use that and so on. And some people have bad experiences, but some those are in a small minority, I believe. Uh, so I personally have, from my own perspective, I don't know how it is. I, I, I know people who have experienced this. And in some cases, it's a life-changing experience. It's like uh, you finally connect with another world, another realm. And it, it uh, gives some people what seems to be the what seems to them to be the proof that there is a world beyond our own and maybe god exists and spirits exist and all that that sort of thing and it's something that people have used for centuries for thousands of years you know various native peoples even in india we had something called soma which we seem to have lost i don't think it was a psychedelic most likely soma was a stimulant something that pumps you up like a, like you know in gym people who a workout they use this these pre-workout supplements it, it pumps you up and primes you for having uh, heavy lifting in the gym so soma seems to have been some kind of stimulant that that warriors would ingest before going into battle it would make them you know almost invincible 
and uh, there are lots of hymns to soma in the rig veda and various other vedas but uh, so i don't think it was a psychedelic because if you had an altered state of consciousness then maybe you would not do very well in battle you know so uh, soma most likely was not a uh, psychedelic but you have things like uh, psilocybin mushrooms that are found in abundance apparently in india and you have things like cannabis which is uh, what is colloquially known as ganja ganja right so uh, cannabis is just uh, a leaf it's it's a herb it's a plant and it's been used since time immemorial by various uh, by by indians uh, there are say, various uh, sadhus you know various sects and the classes of sadhus that use this especially those who uh, some of them who worship lord shiva they they take it as part of their rituals and all that so it's been there it's been around in in humanity since essentially since time immer- times immemorial it's always been a part of uh, human existence i'm not sure that everybody partook of these experiences but certainly it was something that was accepted in in society especially indian society it was not something that was frowned upon it was not seen as something that is illegal nowadays some of these things are illegal i think when it comes to ganja which is cannabis it's kind of quasi legal or quasi illegal i mean i don't think the cops especially uh, uh go after people who use that even in, in some festivals it's kind of more or less legal people can use it openly and so on so yeah it's been around for for the for the longest period of time i think it must be as old as humanity and uh, it would have uh, various po- possibly positive effects on uh, human beings nowadays people use it uh, in the west in the us and uh, netherlands and other places as a pain reliever some people who have uh, chronic illnesses or even terminal illnesses like terminal cancer they use cannabis uh, which kind of gives them some uh, relaxation and and pain relief so these properties have been known for a very long time and uh, i don't think cannabis is something that is a habit forming substance i may be wrong don't quote me on that i as far as i know from my limited knowledge and understanding cannabis doesn't seem to be something that is habit forming like tobacco for instance tobacco is is like a hard drug it's it's more addictive than heroin and cocaine i mean people who uh, are addicted to smoking or tobacco in whatever form they find it harder to quit the habit then heroin and cocaine addicts find <laughs> to quit heroin and cocaine so tobacco is is really bad it's really really hard for addicts to quit tobacco which is why i have i have the highest respect for those who have been un, been tobacco addicts and then they gave it up you know so yeah so i don't think these psychedelics are especially harmful uh and i don't think that even if the, if you if you smoke cannabis for instance you're going to inhale dust i mean uh, soot and smoke into your lungs that will obviously not have a very good effect but i don't think it's anywhere as harmful as inhaling tobacco smoke for instance so overall i think uh, cannabis and psilocybin mushrooms and ayahuasca and whatever else dmt etc these don't seem to have any genuinely significantly harmful effects dmt is something that seems to be especially potent and powerful it's like uh, taking a shortcut into med- meditation when you meditate you go into altered states of consciousness or uh, you actually come into contact with your subconscious when you uh, your uh, practice of meditation is advanced enough and you continue that for months or years you may actually experience visions you may see visions you may hear things which which others won't hear 
So that's an advanced stage of meditation. When you take something like DMT, it kind of acts, it seems to act like a shortcut to that advanced stage of meditation. So you may experience things like that, but it doesn't mean that you have become an evolved, more evolved human being, the way somebody who is an experienced meditator would be, right? So yeah, it, it does give you certain benefits. It may be a life-changing experience for many people. I personally have never experienced it, but yeah, it's it's been around for the longest time and clearly it's it's never been seen as something bad. Right, let's do something else. Uh, let's take some other questions. Uh, I saw something interesting and it disappeared very quickly. Uh, Rohan. Rohan says, I quit smoking for five months and I don't feel eager to have it like I used to have before. First month is very hard, but once you can overcome that time, it gets steadily, it goes down. Well, congratulations, Rohan, and respect to you, sir, for quitting tobacco. And please don't ever do it again because it's not good. We all know that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm sure that the first initial phase is the toughest, the first day, the first week, the first month, and it always gets better after that. So, I'm very happy to see that you've quit smoking and please stay on track. Don't smoke again. Okay, let's take something else. Um, they just says, why do you always call Pakistan a temporary nation and why not Bangladesh and Sri Lanka? Well, Bangladesh, Vangadesh has always been known as Vangadesh. West Bengal is actually Vangadesh itself. Bangladesh has been bifurcated, partitioned into two about more than 100 years ago by the British. And the outcome of that is Bangladesh and West Bengal. So this region has always been known as either Gouda or Vanga or initially Anga, right? So the name Bangladesh makes sense. It is the correct name for the region. And in, in the future, we may, in the long run, perhaps in 100 years, maybe, reincorporate that within greater India. It is a likelihood, a very strong likelihood. So it is something that will be reincorporated into India. It will, it will still be called Vangadesh or whatever we want to call it. So that name is not temporary. As a nation, it may exist for some time, yeah. And when it comes to Lanka, Sri Lanka, it's always been Lanka for the longest time, for millennia. And it may be a nation, it may be a province, it may be whatever, but it's always going to be Lanka. And that's why I have never ever imagined calling Sri Lanka a temporary nation or Bangladesh a temporary nation. Bangladesh is more temporary <laughs> as, it's, uh, as it would be because it's always been part of India. Sri Lanka has been always kind of detached for the past 10,000 so or so years because of the... Uh, uh, because the ice age ended and the sea levels rose, so it became separated from India. But Pakistan was purpose-made, purposefully created for the sake of destabilizing India. The British did that. The British created Pakistan in order to keep India destabilized, in order to further their geopolitical interests in the region, not only in Asia, not only in the Indian subcontinent, but also in the Gulf region, in the uh, Arabian subcontinent, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, and so on. So that so Pakistan will last as long as these nations, as, as long as the West and China for now, are in the ascendancy and are on balance stronger than India. As India gets stronger, it's it, Pakistan will be dealt with appropriately. And that's why the major focus has always been on Pakistan. The major pain point for India in the Indian subcontinent is not Bangladesh by any means. It's not Sri Lanka by any means. It's always been Pakistan. It's been created purposefully to
to keep on destabilizing india to keep on bleeding india and that's why that is the first a matter that will have to be dealt with by india geopolitically sri lanka i have no issue if it stays a separate nation nation state for the next 100 200 years whatever they are any way part of our civilization we have nothing no friction with them no no significant friction with them yes right now they have various puppet regimes that are essentially puppets of the west and they are right now the nation is being uh, compromised the economy is being compromised by the west the imf loans and all that we know how that works yeah but sri lanka culturally and people to people wise there is no real genuine friction and that's why we we are perfectly happy with sri lanka the way it is bangladesh there, there are issues but we will de- deal with them in in a civilized manner which is which is going to be good for the long term interests of the peoples of the of everybody of uh, the region and so on Pakistan also I don't I don't really um, wish the people ill I genuinely have no ill feeling for the people the common man woman and child of Pakistan I wish them well I wish them happiness I wish them long term prosperity but the nation state is an abomination it has been created for the sake of destabilizing india it has to be dealt with geopolitically at the right uh, at the right time in the right way so that's why because of these reasons i mean you could even say afghanistan has been carved out of india by foreign colon- colonizers which happened in the past 1000 years so yeah so that also you could say it's it's unfinished business in a way yeah but let's let's uh, look at the most immediate and most pressing matter which is pakistan so that's why i i have never even imagined calling afghanistan or or bangladesh or sri lanka temporary nation i i only wish to deal with pakistan first and that's what we will do yeah so that's the reason yeah i hope it makes some sense <laughs> okay let us see some other questions uh afghanistan and pakistan both afghanistan and pakistan need to be incorporated into india i would disagree i mean i don't know which time frame you're looking at if you're saying we need to incorporate afghanistan pakistan into india in the next 20 years good god no thank you have you seen the kind of people there are who live there the overall outlook see there was a pew pew poll done in afghanistan before the americans withdrew some time ago and according to that pew poll over 90% of the people who responded to the poll expressed a desire for afghanistan to be a sharia state right so that is the will of the people of afghanistan is that compatible with the uh, will of the people of india and the culture of india the, do, does do, does that mix it doesn't mix and therefore it's pointless and completely counterproductive to even think of incorporating afghanistan into india right now yeah maybe in the future and when we are talking about the future we are talking about our descendants will do that maybe 100 years from now or so yeah not now and similarly pakistan also has a very has an even i mean afghanistan the people of india, afghanistan still have some kind of warmth towards india they they don't uh, see india as an elimination the people of pakistan are brainwashed since nursery in junior kg in senior kg in first standard into hating india can you really incorporate those people back into india just imagine how things will go if we do that if we inco- reincorporate pakistan the the territory into india and open the borders just imagine the situation that will create can't do that right now so there will be other ways of dealing with pakistan first of all we need to deal with the army that 
has this stranglehold and chokehold on the people and the resources of this territory currently presently temporarily pakistan then give it some time to settle down let pashtunistan the northwest uh, parts of the northwest frontier province and khyber pakhtunwa let that go back let that reunite with the nation of afghanistan because that obviously is uh, makes sense yeah from an ethnic and cultural and linguistic perspective let sindh become free for some time let balochistan go its own way for some time yeah and let Pasht- punjab also deal with its people for some time and then in the long run we will we will do whatever is appropriate slowly slowly steadily yeah patience my friends patience not yet okay mm. Let us see. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We, we should always take a couple of questions about aliens, yeah? Are aliens real? Pentagon said they, they have more videos of the UFOs, but they won't publish them. Is it true? Listen, I have never met an alien. I have never seen any unequivocal evidence of aliens existing. All you see is these news reports and these grainy videos and grainy photographs, which doesn't prove anything and which actually makes me more skeptical. Yeah? So I believe that a, a, the universe is so vast that aliens, other intelligent civilizations other than ours would certainly exist. I am almost 99.999% convinced that they exist somewhere, maybe in our own galaxy, maybe in other galaxies. But have they ever come to the to our planet? There is no evidence for that. No evidence as far. I have not found any evidence that is 100% conclusive and proves it beyond a doubt. There are pieces of circumstantial evidence that may look like this, may look like that, but it doesn't convince me completely. So therefore, as far as I'm concerned, there is no proof. There is no unequivocal proof of aliens. I would love if they were there. I would certainly want to have an alien sitting next to me. How are you doing, sir? And let's have a conversation. Yeah. But uh, until that's possible, I will say no. The day, the day I have an alien sitting here, <laughs> we're going to have fun. Not yet. It's too early for that. Too early for that, my friends. Okay, Shivam says, why did the Indian people lose the ability to read the Brahmi and Gupta period scripts until the goddamn Brits deciphered them in the 19th century? You see, things change. If you want to understand the world in two words, it is, things change. The world changes. Okay? And lots and lots of scripts have evolved naturally over time in India. You had the Saraswati Sindhu era script, which uh, which seems to have been deciphered yeah, recently, and uh, the decipherment seems to make sense. So the Saraswati Sindhu era script. Then you have a later uh, evolution of that, which seems to be the transitive Brahmi script, which seems to have uh, emerged around 1500 BC. Then you had the proper Brahmi script. Then you had also something called Kharoshti. Now you have the Brahmi script and then you have a whole bunch of scripts that come out of Brahmi. So Brahmi evolved into a whole family of different scripts. And as these new scripts emerged, the people, wherever these scripts emerged, the people started using those scripts. And over time, the scripts evolved more and more and became more and more different from the parent Brahmi script. So after a thousand years, after 1500 years, people kind of lost the ability to read Brahmi. But if you examine the morphology of the Brahmi characters and you compare that with these similar characters with the, for the same sounds in various descendant scripts, you can actually see that, yeah, I can see how it evolved. 
Yeah. So because of the passage of time and because of the adoption of the daughter scripts of Brahmi, that's why people lost the ability to read the parent script. The British deciphered the script. If the British had not done it, we would have done it. So let's not give undue uh, credit to the British for doing everything good in India. They have done nothing good in India. Anyway, that's a whole different story. Let's not go there for now. So that's why this happened. Hmm? Brahmin, even the Gupta period script is a script that has emerged out of Brahmi. Various Southeast Asian scripts, like the Khmer script, like the Mon script, like the Thai script, like the Burmese script, etc., are also scripts that are descendants, daughter scripts of the parent Brahmi script, and so on and so forth. All right, so I hope that uh, answers this question. I speak five languages, says Rakshit, and I am interested in learning linguistics, how to go about it. You speak five languages, you're interested in learning linguistics. I'm not sure if there are any textbooks on linguistics, etc. and so on. Um, I think the more languages you are exposed to, the more connections and patterns you're able to see. And if you speak five Indian languages, you essentially, essentially speaking languages that are, that are very closely related to each other. Let's say you speak Hindi, Odia, Kannada, and Telugu. These four languages are very closely related to, related to each other. It, about 40 to 50% of the vocabulary of these four languages will be the same. So it's actually various dialects and very closely related languages to, to the... Uh, so that's how it is. But if you learn a language that may be part of the same language family, but it's a further away language. Let's say you learn Irish Gaelic. Or let's say you learn the Catalan language. Or let's say you learn the language of the Faroe Islands. Or you learn German. Or you learn Italian. Then you're going to see similarities and patterns that are very far apart. But you can still see the similarities. So I think um, practical linguistics is lies in learning more languages. Um, you also can learn uh, linguistics formally. You have to learn the stuff, morphology of the phonemes and all that stuff. Yeah. So for that, I'm sure there are textbooks. I have never studied linguistics from a textbook. My uh, understanding of linguistics comes because I have been exposed to a variety of Indo-European languages. I, uh, from childhood, I was exposed because of school to Sanskrit. Then I know at least two, three different Indian languages. I also know a couple of, of foreign languages, Western languages. I also have a little bit of exposure to Latin and so on. And that's why I'm, a, I'm able to, that's why I was able to uh, see all the patterns that, that uh, underlie the Indo-European languages, but I have never studied linguistics formally in, in, a, in a classroom setting from a textbook and all. So I suppose there must be textbooks for that. I mean, you should you can look it up and start studying. Yeah, that's what I would say. How to go about studying something. First of all, acquire the fundamentals, the textbooks that elucidate the fundamentals. Start with the most basic textbooks. Master that, study that, spend six months, one year studying that, mastering that, and then go on to more advanced textbooks. That's how you learn anything. So that's what I would uh, tell you to do, right? All right, all right. Uh, I think I took the question last week. What are your views on India having a nationwide mourning in reaction to the death of the Queen of England? However, 15th August, Modiji made a speech on removing colonial thinking. Was there a nationwide mourning in reaction to Elizabeth's death? 
I did not observe a single human being or non-human being <laughs> mourning anything. I saw people having fun. The, the official day of mourning was last Sunday, I believe. I think people were having fun last Sunday. I did not observe a single person wearing mourning clothes and, and shedding tears and not, uh, you know, all that. I observed lots of people having a lot of fun. I did not observe a single person who was upset or mourning. So this was a symbolic gesture that the government did on a Sunday when no banks are open. And even if it was not on Sunday, there was there was going to be no bank holiday or anything. It was a purely symbolic gesture. Now, the question you're asking is about removing colonial thinking. Mr. Modi, Modi ji, said this. He said that we need to eradicate all traces of colonial of mental colonization and visible colonization from india by 2047 right it's a process that happens step by step the key to doing that is to change the education system we are not even taught what the colonizers did to us and that's why we keep blaming ourselves for everything that's wrong in indian society Right, so these things will take time. It's going to be a step-by-step -step process. We have done some symbolic things and more than symbolic things. We have changed the naval ensign of the Indian Navy. We have removed that abominable cross, yeah, the foreign cross, which has nothing to do with India or Indian history or Indian culture. It is a symbol and a, and a visible sign of colonization of end of slavery. So we have removed that symbol, which is a great step. It is more than a symbolic gesture. We have also uh, placed the statue of Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose where the statue of the King of England used to stand. Excellent. Again, so, and we have renamed the Rajpath, which was named in honor of the British king, to uh, Kartavya Marg or something like that, right? Uh, uh, I think something like that. So, it is a process. Steps are being taken. Very. Do you know that uh, in, in various Commonwealth nations, there was uh, a significant... Uh, period of mourning and very visible mourning and genuine mourning unlike in India where it was only in name so we are still part of the commonwealth we are still not a nation that is that powerful that we can just shake everything off like the US did the US was also ruled by the British Rem remember that but they fought the British on the battlefield in battlefields and they defeated the British comprehensively and they evicted them threw them out and by means of doing this, because they did that, they had earned the right to not be part of the Commonwealth. Has India earned the right to not be part of the Commonwealth? We are still mentally colonized. We are still overtly colonized in so many things. So it's going to be a process. It's not going to happen today. Please understand everything is a process. It has to happen step by step. It is something called phased deployment. It will happen by 2047. And the process is now accelerating. So you all need to contribute to the acceleration. If if you can see any, any signs and symbols of colonization, do not respect that. Do not pay tribute to that. And first of all, mentally decolonize yourselves, my dear friends. So that's how we do it. All right? Um, Harsh says, what's your view regarding the reintroduction of the cheetah? Meow. And how is it going to help our ecology? Do you all know what sound a cheetah makes? Do you think cheetahs roar like lions and leopards? Well, I, I would say 
I would I would encourage you to watch YouTube videos of cheetahs vocalizing. They meow like cats, and yet they are no cats. They are no house cats. They are big creatures, and they can easily dismantle a human being should they be so inclined. Anyhow, the question is about the reintroduction of the cheetah. So, uh, was it today? Was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday or today. Uh, the prime minister. Uh, officially introduced those cheetahs, those those eight, seven, eight, nine, whatever the number is, cheetahs that we have brought in from Namibia. And they have been reintroduced into the wild in India for the first time in nearly a century. We have cheetahs on Indian territory. Fantastic. So what's my view about this? It's it's a, It's been a long time coming and it's great that we have finally done, finally done this. India had been requesting our... Persian brethren and sisterin, their government, to send us some cheetahs. The last remaining population of Asiatic cheetahs exists in Persia, in Iran, right? And that's the same species as the subspecies, the same subspecies as the extinct Indian cheetah. The the our Persian <laughs> friends just kept on uh, putting it off, and it's never happened. Yeah, they acted very very pricey. So now finally we have done this. We have brought in cheetahs from uh, Namibia. Uh, and apparently, not apparently, it has been demonstrated that the uh, that the subspecies of cheetah that uh, lives in Namibia is genetically quite close to the extinct Indian cheetah. So Dr. Neeraj Rai and his team, they did a study, a genetic study of the mitochondrial DNA of the of a couple of specimens of Indian cheetahs from museums and a couple of specimens of uh, Namibian, Namibian cheetahs. And they found that the Namibian subspecies is quite close to the Indian subspecies of cheetah. And that's why it makes sense to reintroduce cheetahs from Namibia rather than from other parts of Africa. So that's been done. It's not about helping our ecology. Uh, uh, it's about re reintroducing an animal that has been part of our, our landscape for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, right? So it, it makes sense to have these animals back and eventually what happens, it will, it will rebalance the, the ecosystem. Every single species and subspecies of animal, whether it is insects, whether it is arthropods, whether it is birds, whether it is animals, herbivores, carnivores, they all create a certain balance in the ecosystem. And the British, by eradicating the cheetah, created an imbalance in the ecosystem of India which would have manifested itself in a variety of ways. Unfortunately, our natural historians, etc., have, have published no studies about the impact of the extinction of the cheetah on the Indian ecosystem. There is not a single study that has been published as far as I have seen. And I've actually looked for this. Yeah. What has been the effect, long-term effect and consequences of the disappearance of the cheetah on the overall ecosystem in India, flora and fauna and all that? Nothing has been done. There must have been a significant effect. Yeah. Because there will be species of, of creatures, of animals, that would be the natural prey for the cheetah. And the cheetah would be their natural predator. And the existence of both these species and on classes of species would, would uh, create a certain balance in the ecosystem. And the disappearance of the predator would have created an imbalance in terms of an overpopulation of the species that the cheetahs would typically prey upon. So these things would have happened, but no study has been done because our scientists, etc., they, I don't know what they do. I have no idea what they do. Yeah. Anyhow, so the reintroduction of the cheetah will rebalance the ecosystem. It's just seven or eight or nine cheetahs. It's less than 10, I know. 
and it's going to take time we would need at least a few hundred cheetahs for this rebalancing to actually take place wherever the cheetahs are reintroduced so it's still very early days we're going to give them these cheetahs some time to settle down right now their nerves will be all shaken up because of the plane journey yeah and they are now in an unfamiliar environment they were in namibia now they are in india it will take them some time maybe a few weeks to settle down and then they can have a few offspring who will be born on indian soil that is a great thing and let this happen and maybe we can bring in a few more cheetahs in the future and once we have a few hundred cheetahs at least the same number as the indian lions that we have in gujarat then we could say that uh, we can now study and see the kind of rebalancing of uh, the ecosystem that that's happening so until that happens it's still very early days it's still very early days it's just a small number of it's more like a symbolic reintroduction but a very good and positive and important step all right right next question what other questions do we have lost tribes of israel i have no idea about that um gb says is it true that the ming chinese had discovered america and sailed around africa in the 15th century before columbus as gavin menzies claimed as the porcelain cultural links and mitochondrial dna you know this story of this great uh, chinese explorer called shanghe who apparently was a eunuch whatever that means this these stories started circulating in the very early years of the 21st century around the year or the late part of the 20 of the 20th century in the late 90s early 2000s these stories started circulating and the americans were at the forefront in time magazine etc they were started talking about these stories how much truth is there to it and how much of it is propaganda i still can't tell i still can't tell how much of this is propaganda and how much is of this is true maybe some of it is true maybe this fellow shanghe may have come to sri lanka or something but there are stories of the, of the chinese having gone all around the universe maybe even to the moon and jupiter and all i don't know what's the evidence yeah so i am extremely skeptical about these stories all right i'm very skeptical about this uh and uh, i personally have seen no evidence that the chinese had discovered america and sailed around africa and all that there are various claims that are made i have not seen evidence that that convinces me thus far so that's what i would say about this matter all right all right let's see some other questions let's see some other questions uh your take on pm modi and vladimir putin's dialogue at the sco summit 2022 let more facts emerge what 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 was discussed and all but it's good that the two leaders met and had a conversation and had a discussion about various matters uh so that's what i can see from the preliminary news reports that we have seen i'm not sure what was detail was discussed in detail but i think it's a positive move yeah it's a very positive move it's a great move and we need to keep doing that uh here we come what is proto tamiz how does zh equal to l how does it work anyway <laughs> i'll not go there what is proto tamil civilization is it really a thing there is only one civilization which is indian civilization which goes back 10000 plus years now every time you discover a new archaeological site you will observe that the media will term that as a new civilization so if you discover next week a new archaeological site in madhya pradesh they will say madhya pradesh civilization if you discover a new archaeological site in 
Rajasthan, they will say Rajasthan civilization. If you discover something new in Maharashtra, they will say a new Maharashtra civilization. This is nonsense. They don't even know the meaning of what of civilization. Everything was interconnected, interrelated. We have discovered so little thus far because our archaeologists, for whatever reason, have been doing nothing until very recently. Now we are discovering new things. Yes, we have discovered uh, sites like uh, Kiladi and uh, Adi Chalanur and lots of other sites. So we are now going to start seeing the interlinkages between these sites and the sites in the rest of India. I mean, you find various variants of the Brahmi script there. What does it mean? It means this, was, this wasn't isolated from northern and western India. It was all connected, interconnected. Yeah. So there is no such thing as proto-Tamil, proto-something else, proto-this, proto-that, proto-Maharashtrian, proto-Orissa, proto-Kashmir. It's just India. And this is something I've been trying to say for the past more than one year, but um, I'm sure there are people who have come more recently in, on this channel. But it's just Indian civilization. India is the first place where the out-of-Africa migrants settled down permanently. And this settlement happened at least 74,000 years before today. And since that time, Indian culture and civilization has been developing in a variety of ways. This is the oldest civilization. And the unmistakable evidence of cultural continuity and civilizational continuity goes back at least 9,500 years. And the more we explore archaeologically, the more, the, the older it's going to get. Because there are thousands of unexplored archaeological sites all across India. There are thousands just on the dry riverbed of the extinct Saraswati River. Can you imagine how much there is to discover? So there is no such thing as proto-Tamil, proto-something else, proto-whatever. It's just Indian civilization. Right? Please understand that. Okay, who's the most fearsome warrior in the whole of known history? Uh, who was the greatest warrior of the Mahabharat? It was Arjun, right? Arjun, the great warrior, Parth, the great Parth, the great Gudakesh. So Arjun was one of the most fearsome warriors in, ho in, the, known, in the whole of history. Lord Ram was one of the greatest warriors, of course, who came before Arjun. Uh, Lord Bhima was a massively powerful and, and very, very strong warrior, almost impossible to defeat. But we don't quite know when these events happened. We have some tentative dates, but tentative date ranges. But even today, most academics would say that this is mythology, right? And they are completely wrong about that. Anyhow, when we talk about more grounded history where we actually know the dates, who's the most fearsome warrior? Well, uh, so when we talk about the Greek Achilles, even that kind of seems like mythology. Of course, they did discover the place which is considered to be Troy, which is Hisarlik in Anatolia, in western Anatolia, present-day Turkey. Yeah. So Achilles would have would have most likely existed, the Greek warrior Achilles, and he was the greatest warrior of his time and the greatest warrior of the Trojan War. Yes. So he's one of the great warriors. Alexander was a great conqueror who conquered all the way up to the last frontier which he could not conquer which killed him which is india so he was a great warrior yes napoleon was a great warrior but if you want to me to name one person in known and recorded history in 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 the sense that we know the dates 
I would say it would be the great Shri Chinggis Khan and his people. I mean, what he did, nobody else did. He conquered more territory in 20 years than, than the Roman emperors conquered in 300 years. Think about it. Chinggis Khan conquered more territory in 20 years than all of the Roman emperors conquered in 300 years. And way more than Alexander, way more than anybody else we know. So if you want to talk about the past 3,000, 4,000 years, certainly as far as we know, it is the great warrior, the great uh, freedom fighter and, and warrior for peace, Shri Chinggis Khan. He was somebody who fought for peace, for establishing peace and the rule of law in the world. All right? So in my opinion, thus far as, as far as you know, he's the greatest in the last 4,000 years of history. Okay. Uh, Rathod Rohit says, why are we not able to make our own jet engine until now? And we don't have any fifth generation fighter jet. We are in the process of developing. Let me answer the second half of the question first. We are in the process of developing at least one fifth generation fighter jet, which is the AMCA, Advanced Medium Combat Aircraft, AMCA. There could be a TE, TEDBF being developed, a twin engine deck based fighter, which is something that will live on aircraft carriers. That most likely would be a fifth generation fighter jet. The AMCA is definitely going to be a fifth generation fighter jet with stealth characteristics and various other features and so on and so forth. So because of the success of the Tejas fighter jet program, we now have the industrial base and know how to make better and better jet planes. It's all going to be based off the learnings and the lessons learned during the development of the Tejas fighter plane, which was a long process. It was still worth it. Now we're going to have more advanced variants of the Tejas fighter plane. And we're going to use these learnings for the AMCA and other fighter planes. And that, that development process is going to be much faster and much more successful because of the lessons we've learned. Now, jet engines. So even when it comes to the AMCA, the initial prototypes and the first batch, I suppose, will use an American engine, you know, a general electric engine, most likely. So the question is, why does it take so long? Why is it taking so long to develop a jet engine? Yeah. I mean, we have a working Kaveri jet engine, but it's underpowered. It's uh, the, the kind of thrust it generates is about 70, 75 kilonewtons, which is not enough. We want a jet engine that has 90 plus kilonewtons of, uh, of thrust, at least, maybe more than that. I don't remember the exact numbers, but we want something that's much more powerful. Now, what is the problem? What's the problem? Why is it so hard to develop jet engines? The Chinese have been trying to develop a jet engine of their own for the longest time. They seem, I mean, they claim to have succeeded to some extent now, to some extent, extent now, the W some something jet engine or whatever it is, but it's still not a very reliable jet engine. So why is it so hard to develop jet engines? So let's go back to the first initial days when jet engines became a thing. The first jet engines were developed by German scientists during the Second World War. So the entire concept of a jet engine came out of Germany. The first jet engines were placed. Um, was it a? I think it was an, a, a German aircraft. And what they've discovered is that after one flight or one sortie, the jet engines were burned out, and you had to replace 
jet engines with a completely new set of engines so the thing is this in a jet engine you are ingesting air from the front pulling it in sucking it in and then you are mixing that air with the fuel you're burning it at extremely high temperatures and that explosive reaction of this high pressure air mixing with fuel and exploding that forms the thrust of the jet engine from the back that is a very high temperature and high pressure reaction which tends to destroy the turbine blades of a jet engine so if you have a regular turbine blade made out of your typical steel or whatever metal you use it's going to degrade very rapidly very very rapidly and because of that what uh, the jet engine manufacturers have to do is that they have to develop exotic materials when it comes to the successful jet engines like rolls royce and in the safran french engine and all that various various uh, makes of jet engine they typically construct the turbine blades which is the most delicate component which needs to be very tough they construct this turbine blades as a single crystal of metal the entire blade is grown like you grow a plant or a tree it's grown and it's they ensure that it's a single crystal of metal that's what they do and the exact substance they use the exact metal or alloy they use is top secret and this is something they have perfected over several decades initially all jet engines were highly unreliable they would blow up or burn and things would go bad right so this is something that took many many decades for them to develop and perfect so india also will have to go through that process of trial and error and lots of painful you know painful failures which we have gone through when it comes to the kaveri jet engine so we have two options in front of us either we go through the whole tedious long painful process until we have a reliable 90 plus kilonewton engine or we pay somebody some money and acquire and buy the technology so most likely the best candidate is france they have this company called uh, safran or snecma i don't know what it's called nowadays one of these two names and they uh most likely are willing to offer the technology at a price the price is going to be really high they're going to demand an arm and a leg for it yeah and even then we have to ensure that they are not cheating us and not depriving us of some key components so it's it's something that india will have to approach very carefully to ensure that we are getting our money's worth so it's something that seems to still be in process or has something happened and we don't know about it maybe we should not know about it until the time is right you'd never an- announce a success until it is a fait accompli until it's done and sometimes even after you've done it and even after you've accomplished what you want to accomplish you don't announce it to the world in order to keep your adversaries and enemies of we have no of we there is no dearth of enemies for us so we want to keep them guessing yeah so um so that's the reason why this jet engine development take so long it's so hard the chinese are still struggling with that and they have many much more resources they can throw much more money it's not about throwing money you know it's about going through the process of trial and error and trial and error and do it again and again and again until you start seeing what works and then you build upon that it's a long process this is engineering 
engineering is art and science together it is science it all it all works on the basis of the principles and the laws of physics and yet there is an art to it there is an art to it that's what engineering is anybody who manufactures things anybody who who builds stuff with their own hands with tools knows that there is an art to it in addition to the science behind it so that's the process developing a fighter jet is way easier than developing a jet engine we already have the some of the best missiles in the world we already have a very good um, rocket uh, ecosystem you know a family of rockets we have the PSLV we have various kinds of JSLV rockets various variants we have our own cryogenic engines we have all the ingredients to build very powerful rockets if the government allows us allows the allows this role that's a different different story so it's easier to build cryogenic engines it's easier to build high quality rockets powerful rockets it's easier to build jet planes than building a reliable jet engine yeah so that's what it is shall we take some video chat questions i've not done that for a very long time <laughs> shall i do that yes no would you like to come on video chat and maybe me take a few questions from video let's see if you all are willing maybe i may think about it later on during this session okay Harish says, what's your views on esports? Do you think it qualifies as, as a legitimate sport? Um, it is, well, I don't know if it qualifies as a legitimate sport. Do I have a point of comparison? Take chess. In Russia, they consider chess to be a real sport. I think in most of the world, chess is recognized as a genuine legitimate sport. And at the highest level of chess, at the grandmaster level of chess, at the top of the grandmaster level, when the best chess players in the world, they participate in, let's say, a 10-day or, or a week-long tournament, and they are playing chess matches, chess games every day at the highest level, typically over a week or two, they lose close to 10 kilos of weight. That's how much processing power their brain is using. You know, the brain is the most resource-intensive organ in the human body. And they are processing data and, and calculating moves at such a high uh, level that it, it, it consumes so much energy. And they lose that energy in terms of weight, you know, body weight. So, yeah, in, in a way, it's, it's a sport. And I'm not sure about esports, how that is done. Do you need that sort of uh, mental focus and, and processing in esports as well? Do people who participate in esports tournaments also come out all exhausted and, and weight lost? I'm not sure. If that is the case, then I, I if, if that is something that indeed happens, if it is physically demanding, then I would say that it would be something that is in some ways on par or similar to chess, in which case I would say that we have a legitimate point of comparison, and then it makes sense to classify esports as legitimate sports. So I personally have not looked into this, but if you want to find bases, a basis of comparison, that's what I can offer to you. And if it does work that way, then I would say that maybe it should be considered to be a legitimate sport. Right. Some people are saying they would like to do video chat with me. All right, we can perhaps consider that. We can consider that. Anirudh says, 
talk about the start and the evolution of boxing. I think boxing has existed for millions of years. Do you know that kangaroos can box? Kangaroos have three legs. Their tail is used as a leg. That's what I mean by that, right? So they they have a very massive muscular tail. They can actually relax on that on their tail, and and they have two powerful hind legs, and they have a very muscular tail. So they use that as a tripod that gives them extreme stability, and then they can box. I've seen kangaroos boxing and throwing punches at humans. You know, I've seen that. So kangaroos box. I'm sure some dinosaurs would have existed that would have also have boxed, and we humans. I mean, I've seen chimpanzees and gorillas throw punches just the way a human being would do. So I think boxing has been around forever. The art of throwing a punch, that's something that comes naturally to all human beings and to our closest relatives, the chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans. I suppose they would also do that, forming a fist and throwing a punch. So I think boxing has been around in that sense for the past 20 million years. The thing of... of, of forming a fist and throwing a punch. But the actual sport, well, I think that would have been around for about a couple of centuries, perhaps. Yeah. And it's evolved. It's evolved. So if you look at the boxing champions, the heavyweight and other boxing champions of the early 20th century, they look not that physically impressive. They're not all, all chiseled, right? They they typically are not very impressive physical specimens. They are definitely bulked up and muscular and all, but not the way uh, heavyweight boxers are today. So in the early 20th century, you had strong men who would box. They would be physically imposing, but they would not have the defined muscular physique that would come in later. Even if you look at uh, the, one of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time, Muhammad Ali, you look at him, he's not that well-built as let's say Mike Tyson or Evander Holyfield, right? He was lighter in weight, actually. So boxing has evolved. It's become more demanding, more physically uh, demanding, yes, more, more brutal in a sense. And then you, you can see the pinnacle of boxing in someone like Mike Tyson. That guy was a physical specimen. I mean, if you see his punching speed and all, it's, it's blinding. His punching speed was similar to the punching speed of uh, someone like Bruce Lee, for instance. That guy was, I, I would say, the most, the scariest and most intimidating boxer of all time would possibly be Mike Tyson, even scarier than Muhammad Ali. And today, of course, when it comes to boxing, uh, you have someone like the Gypsy King. Uh, the Gypsy King, what's his name? Fury, Tyson Fury. And he has a sibling also, a brother, who also is a boxer. Uh, so Tyson Fury is the greatest boxer today. And uh, he thrice, no, twice defeated, what's his name? The bronze bomber. What was his name? Deontay Wilder. He's also a physical specimen. If you look at Tyson Fury, he's not that impressive a physical specimen. He's very tall, 6'10 or so. But he's a fat guy of sorts. You know, he doesn't have that, that uh, aesthetic physique. But he's a great boxer. So boxing has evolved. And, and when it comes to lighter weights, you have someone like, uh, what is his name? Mm, Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather, who never lost a single bout. He was a technical boxer. He never looked for, for knockouts. He just made sure he got the, the punches in. And he, he, goes, he scored the points. And he had it down to, to us to, you know, he was the master of that. He never lost a single fight. Uh, he recently retired and then came out of retirement to, to box against, what's his name? Uh, the notorious 
Conor McGregor and defeated him. And maybe he may still do that in the future. So he's made incredible amounts of money out of uh, boxing. So that's how it's been. Boxing at the very high level, highest level is a very lucrative sport. If you can box at, at a high level, you're going to make millions, especially in the West, especially in the US. In India, I don't know what the deal is, you know, but that's how it is. So it's it's a fun sport to watch. It's it's combat, the, the, most, the most primal form of sport, you know, one man against another man. Nowadays, one lady against another lady. So it's about two people out there and you play by the rules and you see who comes out on top. So yeah, it's it's something that appeals to most people, as, uh, unless you you have uh, an aversion to violence and and uh, all that. I think it appeals possibly to males more because males have a more of that tendency. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's it, I've I've always enjoyed watching boxing. Nowadays, I also enjoy watching MMA, mixed martial arts. That's also fun. That is even more primal and and more you know of that than than boxing. So. Combat sports, sports overall is something that I have always enjoyed watching. Never done it myself, but yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Some other questions. Um, what else do we have? Do we have any interesting question? Any royal families left in India or all, all of them wiped out? No, there are lots of descendants of erstwhile royal families in India. Many of them would not even know, perhaps, that they belong. They are, they are descendants of whatever lineage. Uh, none of them have been actually completely wiped out. What happened in 1857 is that many of these genuine kings and rulers and queens, some of them, in, we know that, yeah, Rani Lakshmi Bai, they rose up against the British. And there was this attempt, the first war of independence, to evict these evil, brutal, barbaric colonizers from India. This attempt failed. In the aftermath of the 1857 war of independence, the British systematically destroyed every royal family, either during the warfare, during the warfare, or later on. So what was done is that all of these royal lineages were terminated. Most of them were killed off. The kings, the legitimate kings, their extended families would have stayed alive. It's impossible to trace everybody back. But yes, the most important members of the family would have been terminated, killed off. Yeah, And then some unimportant, distant relation would be brought in and installed as a puppet king or queen. And that gave rise to princely states. Now, some of the princely states were actually continuations of the legitimate royal lineages in some cases certain royal families decided it was it was better in their estimation to cooperate with the british in some ways in order to keep serving their people look at the royal family of travancore they are a continuation of the older lineage before 1857 and they have done the greatest of service to their people by never allowing the british to know how much treasure was stored in the Shri Padmanabha Swami temple. These are people who did genuine service to the nation, even while pretending to be puppets of the British. So they lost all their power. They had to accept British political agents on their territory. They had to accept British laws and rules. They had to accept all British demands. And they had to pay taxes to the British. And yet, in some small way, in some way, they kept on serving 
their people and the nation and the civilization. There are many other royal families that made this compromise because they had no choice. So some royal families actually are a continuation of older legitimate lineages. Some are just puppets and some are creations of the British. For instance, the, the Nawabs of Patodi were created by the British. This, this uh, institution of the Nawab of Patodi was created by the British in exchange for services rendered to the British crown. So there was some, some Afghan origin, um, Afghan origin mercenary or something who took the side of the British in some war or battle. I don't know which one it was. I don't remember. You can look it up. Look it up. Look it up. Look it up. Yeah. And in exchange for these wonderful services that he rendered to the British, they created a, they created the institution of the Nawab of this small uh, bunch of villages, the most prominent of which was Pataudi in Haryana. And that's how this new institution of the Nawab of Pataudi was created. So many of these royal families are completely fake. Many of them have been created by the British. Many of them were terminated and then replaced by puppets, which were distant relatives. And some of them were actual, some of them that exist today are actual descendants of the original legitimate lineages. lineages. But in many cases, you would have many people who live, to get, live today in India who may not be even aware of the fact that they are a descendant of whatever royal lineage. So uh, royalty doesn't matter anymore in India. Yeah, We are now a democracy of sorts. Who knows what will be in the future? Maybe, maybe in a hundred years, India may be a monarchy again. Who knows? Anything can happen in the future. But uh, yeah, so that's the, that's the way it is today. Right? Um, boxing is the easiest way to get brain damage. There are many easier ways. Drink a lot of alcohol, you'll get brain damage. Do drugs, you'll get brain damage. You know, um, there are all kinds of ways of getting, getting brain damage. Boxing obviously is one of the ways. You get punched sufficient enough number of times, you'll get concussions, you'll get all kinds of uh, problems in the brain and all that. Yeah. So yes, any combat sport in which you get hit in the head is a shortcut to brain damage. Even certain sports like cricket in which people can get hit on the head, they also can cause problems and so on. There is this Australian cricketer, I forget his name. Uh, he's a guy with longish hair, blonde hair. Will Pukowski or something. He's had like nearly 10 or maybe more than 10 concussions. He's a good batsman, but you know, it's, it's very hard for him to continue playing because... I mean, it's, this is a significant thing of uh, that causes concern. So yeah, there are many ways of getting brain damage. Most sports are dangerous inherently. Yeah, well, that's how it is. I mean, life, life is dangerous. So why not play sports? But yeah, boxing, you have to be careful. Certainly. That's why in, in the amateur level, you have to wear those protective stuff, whatever it is on your head to ensure that you're not hit too hard and all that. Even that can help you or, or safeguard you only to a certain level. All right, let's take some other questions. Yes, this is a continuation of, on a theme that I get almost every week. Akshay says, if India was so advanced, why are we so backward and superstitious and illiterate? Well, sir, I am not backward <laughs> or superstitious or illiterate. But yeah, if you want to talk about India statistically on an average, some people could claim that India has all kinds of problems. Look at it this way, my dear friends. Uh, Steve Jobs created a company called Apple. Yes, it was 
sometime in the 1980s, 1970s, wherever it was. Yeah. So this gentleman, Steve Jobs, created this company, Apple. And it came up with a number of personal computers. They made personal computers a thing. It, they brought it into the public consciousness that, yeah, we can all have a computer of our own and use it for some legitimate purpose, genuine purpose. It's not some luxury. So he created this company, which was doing very well. Then there was a political coup within Apple and Steve Jobs was ousted from Apple. He was thrown out, right? This is part of history. We know this. Then for more than a decade, if I'm not mistaken, Steve Jobs was not a member of Apple. He was not involved with Apple. He was out. During that period of time, Apple's fortunes nosedived. There was new leadership, new management, new CEO, all that, who engineered all this. And Apple, it went from a highly profitable company to a company that was on the verge of bankruptcy in about a decade or so. Slightly, give or take, plus or minus a few years, right? So tell me something. Tell me something. Whom would you blame for the downturn in fortunes of Apple? Would you blame the employees or would you blame the leadership that was in charge of the company? Whom do you blame? Do you blame the employees or do you blame the leadership? I think any sane person would say it is the fault of the leadership that everything went bad. Yes. Now, let's come back to India. Yes, things went bad in the past 1000 years. Who was in charge of India? Who was deciding the laws and the societal structure and the societal class system and everything? Who was in charge of India? It was a bunch of foreign occupiers and colonizers, starting with the Turks and ending with the Europeans. They were in charge of every aspect of life in India for a thousand years. And yes, things went bad. Lots of terrible Things happened in India. Society got distorted. Many uh, bad practices crept into society. All kinds of things went bad. India became extremely poor and so on and so forth. All kinds of ills in society. Whom will you blame for these ills? The leadership and management or the employees? Will you blame the victims or will you blame the actual oppressors? I hear this every day. Why are we so backward? Why are we so this? It is all our fault. It's all our fault. The problem is not, the, the, the fault is not of the people who ask the question. The fault is that of the education system that does not tell you what has been done to your ancestors. You have no idea of the unspeakable horrors that were perpetrated on India for 1000 years. And that's why you keep blaming yourselves and your ancestors. That everything is our fault. Who was the management? Who was the leadership? Who was the CEO that was running the company? Why don't you ask yourselves that? Wake up and ask the right questions. Stop blaming the victims for everything that went wrong. That is my simple message to all of you. All right. All right. Uh, let's, let's, uh, <laughs> uh, there we go. Dowry. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Um, uh, let's see some other interesting questions. WTF Act? No, something else Act. No, no. I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> um, 
do we have any interesting questions what if the british never rule india then india would be a different place then india would be a different place and like i said what if steve jobs was never ousted from apple apples would apple would have been a very different company similarly what if the british never ruled india well before the british were the turks so they would have continued i suppose unless they were a uh, see the british they did not replace the turks of course they replaced the maratha empire and the the maratha empire declined because of infighting and politics and and internal problems so the british took advantage of that so uh, had the british never ruled india either the marathas or their successors would have been ruling india and india would have been a much better place or maybe some kind of combination of turkic whatever so there are all kinds of possibilities and these are all hypotheticals but what if you were to change the question and ask a better question which is what if the foreigners had never ruled india in that case india would have been a way more advanced and better uh, subcontinent and civilization than what it is today way more advanced yes so yeah that's what it is uh, shahin says what are the origins of chess and how has it evolved over time the origins of chess lie in india i think none of the historians who typically like to distort in industry even they are not able to dispute that because we have found evidence of chess boards made out of rock in uh, the in, in i think western india in the saraswati sindhu uh, region i think it was either in uh, lothal or dholavira or something in western india in, in saurashtra gujarat kutch that region yeah uh, so it's clear that chess is something that evolved out of india in deep antiquity if there were chess boards and pieces made out of rock there would have been chess boards and pieces made out of uh, wood also much before that so we don't know when it first emerged but it's something that evolved deep in the antiquity of indian civilization and uh, later on i think the persians got hold of it the chinese got hold of it and they gave it various names and then the europeans got hold of it it was uh, what was it called in india i'm not sure what it was called in india uh, the, the persians they called it shatranj and uh, yeah that, that's that's the kind of story it has i think you can look it up online to find actual details of how the name evolved how did the the name of the sport become chess in english i mean what made these english speaking people decide that we will call it chess and not something else there must have been some story behind that i'm not i'm not quite familiar with what the story is even the ancient game of snakes and ladders that also came out of india yeah that's an indian origin game chess is an indian origin game most likely kabaddi that contact sport very physical sport that also is an indian origin game and as we know polo is also a game that emerged out of india in out of manipur so uh, many of these ancient sports they came out of india and if you look at the story of lord krishna as in his childhood playing with a bat and ball on the on the banks of the river yamuna the ball goes into the river and there's this, there's this great snake sitting inside and there's the whole episode around that well what game was he playing with a bat and ball cricket or an ancient variant of cricket so there you go many of these sports have actually emerged out of india right uh let's see some other oh aditya kumar kar says in bengali we call chess daba that's interesting that's something i did not know i learned something today thank you for telling me that sir and telling us all that 
Chaturanga. Yes, sir. Satish, sir, has given us the right answer. Chaturanga. It was called Chaturanga in Sanskrit. That's the original name of this game. It's not chess, it's Chaturanga. Correct, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I Now that you show it to me, I, I, I remember it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, Bobby says, Parchisi. Could you elaborate, sir? Is that chess? Because that's something I'm not, this, this is a word I've not seen before. Interesting, interesting. Um, the Stoic Berserker says, why is Japan's birth rate decreasing? And what's the cause of a lot of mental problems in, in Japan, even if they are quite advanced? See, um, why is Japan's birth rate decreasing? It's because the economy is not doing well. It has not been doing well since the late 1980s. The economy took a down downhill turn. It's been going downhill ever since. And because of the shenanigans of the Bank of Japan, which is controlled by foreign powers, uh, things went bad. You know, uh, they played around with the interest rates. They played around with the value with the uh, value of the currency vis-a-vis -vis the dollar and so on. And because of the way they played with the interest rates, it became uh, by raising the interest rates, uh, it it it. Uh, it burst the uh, property bubble in Japan, first of all, and then it made it very unattractive for Japanese people to, to spend a lot, to consume. So consumption went down, that made the economy go further down and so on, and the cost of living increased and so on. So the overall thing is that now wages are not as high as they would have been as they used to be in the 80s, comparatively on a, on a parity uh, perspective, from a parity perspective. The wages are lower, uh, prices are high, and it's really, really expensive to raise children. And overall, the society uh, is not a happy society. Uh, there are fewer children. The overall median age is increasing. Um, it's a more gloomy, pessimistic society. It's, it's, see, understand that this country is under foreign occupation. It's been under foreign occupation since 1945. For some time, until the mid-80s, it, it, the economy was allowed to grow. The Japanese people were allowed to, to uh, decide their economic fortunes. But then something went wrong. We don't, know, we don't know who is behind it and who made the decisions and who forced whom to do what. But this is what happened. So now consumption has dropped. Even today, there is, very, there is much lower consumption than the, in the 1980s in Japan. So consumer behavior has changed a lot. Property prices are high. Um, and there are all these problems. So that's why the birth rate is decreasing. It's very expensive to have kids and, and to raise kids. You know, there, there are the things. And mental problems. Yeah, there are mental problems. There are. I think it, it has a reasonably high rate of suicide. Unfortunately, Japan, you have this unfortunate phenomenon of of elderly people dying alone and not that body has not been discovered for days or weeks or months even. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, you have this phenomenon of hikikomori, which is young people who never go out of their house, who live in their parents' house and stay inside their rooms for weeks or months on end. So there are all these problems that uh, exist in Japan. This is all, these are all symptoms of a society that is unfortunately not allowed to determine its own fate. It's a society that is under foreign occupation and a foreign power, a foreign force 
is guiding the fortunes of the society and we are seeing that it's a society society that is sadly sadly in decline and the population is is projected to go down significantly in the next 100 years which is which is actually a, a tragedy altogether yeah okay um why doesn't india create vassal states and puppet governments you got to have the strength and the power to do that understand what power is can you go and make a few vassal people do you have the power to do that <laughs> think about it that way right right let's take some other questions um <clears throat> What is the biggest obstacle to Bharat's growth? The biggest obstacle to Bharat's growth is internal problems. Internal problems. Mental colonization and various uh, manifestations of foreign interference in India's internal affairs and various sex sections of Indian society, dis different disparate sections of Indian society that not all, but some of them definitely are not working in India's interest. Yes. And also this big disunity that you have within India. There is a big sense of disunity within India. And let me give you an example. Let me ask a question to all of you. How many Indians died during British occupation of India? The British occupation of India was about two and a half, three centuries. Yes. I will ask a simple question. How many Indians do you think died? Now, all of you will give all kinds of different answers. Some will say five lakhs. Some will say 10 million. Some will say 15 million. Some will say 30 million. Some will say whatever. Everybody will give different answers. Nobody knows the truth. I will give you a figure of 100 million and then a whole lot of people will start arguing against me. So we can't even agree on the most basic of things. And there is this sense that your local region is more important than the nation. I'm not saying everybody feels that way, but there is a significant sense of that. So all of these internal issues are the biggest obstacle to India's growth. And of course, there is the entire nature of the Indian administration system, government, governance system, the bureaucracy, which is colonial in nature, the education system, which is completely colonial, which continues to perpetuate mental colonization. There is the problem of corruption which is a huge drain on India's economy and so on and so on and so forth. Yeah, lots of problems, but every problem can be solved with the right leadership. And we are, from the leadership perspective, we are definitely going in the right direction. So yes, there are problems, but every problem has a solution and every problem is an opportunity to take the nation in the right direction. So I think India is doing reasonably well. Uh, and yeah, we would like to see it continue in the right direction. Okay, okay, what else do we have? Um, many books defend Churchill. Yeah, we know that. Okay, let's see this. Tanmay says, there are many books that defend Churchill, saying that he actually wanted to prevent the famine and even talked about it in the assembly and all the things, all that. Words or actions, what is more important? He said, he may, I don't know what he said, he did not, did not say, but let's say hypothetically that he said he wanted to prevent a famine. And let's say he went and spoke about it in an assembly. But what action did he take? The actions he took caused the famine. So who cares what he said 
and who cares what he wanted all that matters is what actions he took who cares the people of india place too much emphasis on words and intentions oh he may have failed but he had good intentions oh but he wrote so many good things and he said that he meant this i don't give a damn about what somebody said or what his or her intentions were what actions did they take and what were the consequences of the actions that is the only yardstick by which you measure the worth and the legacy of a leader get that through your heads my dear friends it doesn't matter what somebody wrote somebody may have wrote tens of thousands of pages worth of wonderful things it doesn't matter somebody may have given a million wonderful speeches somebody may actually have had good intentions doesn't matter all that matters is what actions did they take and what were the consequences of the actions that is the only yardstick by which you measure a leader and his or her worth and value and legacy simple keep things simple so that is what i have to say about this right all right uh, let us see what else what occupied the universe before the big bang what is the universe occupying as it expands before <laughs> there is a certain amount of matter and energy within the universe and that is what occupied the universe at the moment of the big bang the universe was a tiny infinitesimally small point like singularity or near to a singularity and everything that's within the universe was contained within that so that's what occupied the universe at the moment of the big bang we have no idea of what came before the big bang you ask stephen hawking you ask albert einstein you ask whoever you want they will give you the same answer we don't know what came before the big bang right and the question the other question is what is the universe occupying as it expands we don't know what lies beyond the universe how do we know we don't have any observational evidence we only can see something within uh, whatever exists within the so called cosmological horizon that is a bubble or a sphere with us at the center and the diameter is about 90 95 billion light years we can only see what is within that what's beyond that we don't know there is a universe beyond that as well we know that but we don't know what lies there and beyond the universe what lies we have absolutely no idea we have no idea you can ask any scientist you want you can ask nobel prize winners you can ask anyone there is no way for us to know we can only deduce things based on observational evidence yeah and we have no observations of what's beyond the universe so we have no evidence there you go um what do i think of stoicism is it a good philosophy to follow and practice so there is this uh, famous book called meditations uh, which was written by the roman emperor marcus aurelius yes he is somebody that uh, the fictional representation of him is found in the movie gladiator yes uh, so this guy was a um of of an adherent of this philosophy now what do i think of it i don't know what to think of it i have never studied stoicism i have not studied a single book on stoicism so i don't know people say it's great 
or to be a stoic means to be somebody who doesn't speak much yeah to be a quiet taciturn person uh that appeals to me somewhat uh you know me as somebody who speaks non stop but in real life i speak less actually compared to the, compared to most people yeah so uh that's uh what i could say i don't know much about it i hear only good things about stoicism so maybe when i ever get the time i may try and crack a book open on stoicism maybe marcus aurelius's book meditations and maybe i will learn something about it so uh yes i have heard of it i am aware of it i hear good things about it but i personally have not followed it i have not studied it and <laughs> so yeah that's the answer that is the answer that i can offer you my dear friends there are things that i have not studied many things i have not studied okay many uh okay atharva says iran is way better than the kingdom of saudi arabia although it has a theocracy i find it more culturally rooted and mature than the latter the islamic republic of iran is far better than the uh, gentlemen and ladies who are the desert dwellers of kingdom of saudi arabia let me offer you a different perspective my dear friends geopolitically in the year 2022 which we are living in i think yeah 22 geopolitically india has far better relations with the kingdom of saudi arabia than with iran iran has never been a reliable uh, partner to india we have been requesting the iranians a very small thing for decades send us a few cheetahs so that we can reintroduce cheetahs in our in our land they never did that yeah we have been trying to um, do oil exploration in the persian gulf in in uh, their exclusive economic zone in a way that's mutually beneficial to both nations no they have not allowed indian companies to uh, to do this you know the farzad b gas field and all that in the 1965 war they allowed pakistan to park their precious jet jet fighters on iranian territory so that they they can be safeguarded from indian attacks yeah iran has never been in the past century maybe past 5 centuries maybe past 10 centuries any kind of good friend of india not a good friend of india we are essentially the same people indians and persians the ancestors of the persians are descendants of vedic clans yeah we are essentially the same people before the events of 1400 years ago we had very similar cultures yeah the language is also very similar and yet persia is not a reliable partner so uh, whatever value judgment i make is from my perspective from a geopolitical perspective from a self from a narrow self interest perspective and from that perspective i think the kingdom of saudi arabia is a better partner to india than persia that's how i see it culturally rooted much mature and all that yeah well that's okay you can see everybody has their perspective my perspective is purely geopolitical the geopolitical perspective is who can i rely upon with whom do i have long term shared interests and so on there is the question of balochistan do you know that iran occupies half of balochistan Balochistan is occupied half half of Balochistan is occupied by Pakistan and half is occupied by Iran the balochi people are not persians they are indians 
there you go so there are all these matters you need to look at things from a bigger perspective and from the narrow lens of ge- geopolitical self interest and then things look different so from my perspective saudi arabia is better than iran because they are cooperating with us in a, a host of matters whether it is energy security whether it is actual national security and various other things we are pretty much on the same page in a multitude of matters yeah and and look at the uh, uh look if you look at the overall attitude of the new ruler de facto ruler of ksa that is uh, mr uh, mohammed bin salman he is pretty much very positively uh, inclined and, and disposed towards india that's good you cannot say the same of the leadership in iran so from my perspective we have better long term prospects with the saudis then with iran right uh somebody has a crush on a girl good good luck sir <laughs> uh, uh what else do we have how many indians are in saudi i believe there are lots and lots of indians in saudi arabia i think there's a religious factor to that most of them would be muslims obviously uh and and sunni muslims are that i suppose so i don't have the exact figures in in front of me but i believe there must be plenty of indians there um uh, and nowadays indians are treated with much more respect than they used to be in the past so that's a that's a good positive thing yeah overall uh um, what what was that what was that i missed a question somewhere it disappeared lots of questions are coming in that's why it's hard for me to hang on to questions anyway apologies for that to whoever it was uh yeah i get this question uh, all the time there was something called a shri yantra of 13 by 13 miles square miles found in oregon usa 1990 with pinpoint accuracy isn't that a concrete evidence of aliens can we recreate it with laser technology from space it is a concrete evidence of of human beings creating this thing right i think there is an article in which the people who created that uh, that uh, structure they actually came forth and they showed how it was done in the past i remember when i was a little kid there was this phenomenon of crop circles so initially there used to be these these big farmlands in which perfect circles would appear some would be small some would be significantly large some would be gigantic they would appear overnight the previous day there was nothing there in the morning you find a big crop circle and you can see the full scale of that from the air from helicopters and, and planes and over time the complexity of these crop circles got mind boggling let me show you an image of a crop circle shall we let's put that on the screen crop sir circle let's put that on the screen let me share my image so these crop circles started appearing typically in england in the uk later in the us and the geometrical shapes were mind boggling they started increasing in complexity can you look at this? can you see this can you see how complex this is this is all something that was done by people they would do this overnight and they found ways and techniques of doing it very intricate geometric shapes very difficult to create and they would do it in a matter of hours in the middle of the night right so these are various crop circles all kinds of complex geometrical images and beautiful images you know and similarly this shri yantra oregon shri yantra oregon oregon right so that's something similar to that 
and I think this was done by people. And uh, the people who actually created this, they did come forward and they admitted that they did this. So there is nothing supernatural. There is nothing alien to it. Uh, people like to believe it because uh, there is some because this is a, apparently something to do with uh, Indian culture. Perhaps I'm not sure. Okay, I I lack a knowledge of what the Sri Yantra is. It looks like the various uh, Buddhist mandalas, ancient Dharmic mandala structures and all that. It looks like that. So yeah, somebody decided to recreate that. I'm not sure how long it took for them to do it. If it is 13 square miles, it would have taken them much more than one night. But it's in the middle of the desert, so maybe nobody noticed them doing doing this. So it's got a very simple explanation. It was done by people, not by aliens. Right? Uh, laser tech from space, I don't think the technology exists thus far Right? to do that. Okay. Um, what else do we have? Why doesn't the government accept Gumnami Baba was Subhash Chandra Bose? Well, it's for the government to give, give the answer. Uh, there seems to be very, very strong evidence that Gubnabdi Baba, Baba was indeed uh, Mr. Bose himself. There seems to be very strong evidence in favor of that. But, well, the government will have its priorities and prerogatives. And maybe, um, I think the government should answer that question if they ever will. Yeah. Okay. Um why do you love the best Prime Minister India has ever had? That is Mr. Nehru so much. I mean, you answered the question. He was the best, best, he was the best Prime Minister India has ever had. The best that ever was, the best that ever is, the best that ever will be, like Bret Hart. So if somebody is that best and that great, we have to love him, isn't it? It is our duty to pay sufficient adequate respect to Sri Nehruji and respect him adequately. Okay, Apurva says, Apurva, according to uh, the External Affairs Minister Jaishankarji, the British looted $43 trillion worth of uh, plunder from India. Yet today their economy is just over $3.3 trillion worth. Where do you think the remaining dollars went? Good question. Good question. Uh, it's actually 45. So, so that's what various uh, economists have calculated based on whatever evidence and data is available in the public domain. I think it must be more than that because much of this, much of the loot would never have been documented. But yeah, let's let's take the figure of $45 trillion from India. Today, Britain's economy, the UK's economy is $3.3 trillion and ours has surpassed that. What does it mean that a nation's GDP is $3.3 trillion? It means that in one year, it produces an economic output of $3.3 trillion per year. India's economic output per year is now, what, $3.5, $3.6 trillion. It's per year only. Think about it. The Sri Padmanabha Swami Temple has a massive amount of treasure stored within it, which whose, whose value is well in excess of a trillion dollars. And there are vaults that have not even been opened thus far. Yeah? So that itself is more than a third of the entire Indian economy. It's not the economy. It's just one year's output, GDP output. So Britain's yearly GDP 
is 3.3 trillion dollars but if you were to do a valuation of all the land of all the properties of all that is valuable in the uk that would be well in excess of 3.3 trillion dollars well in excess of that maybe 10 times maybe 100 times of that but the annual economic output is 3.3 trillion dollars that's the difference so what they plundered out of india would have been worth at least 45 trillion dollars in today's money i think it would be much much more than that all right so that's the difference and much of the money was dissipated it's not all all the treasure it was uh, it was transformed in other forms of of value and many of the families that hoarded that looted the wealth some of them they went and settled down in the us some of them would have descendants who are in various parts of europe so the wealth was over time redistributed why is the uk so prosperous what do they produce they produce nothing and yet they are so prosperous it's all built upon the wealth plundered out of india and the rest of europe which again doesn't produce that much it is that incredibly prosperous because of all the wealth that was plundered out of south america out of africa and also out of india so that's how the west has become prosperous and why is the west declining today because they actually don't produce much there you go so yeah that's the answer i hope that makes sense apurva right let us see something people are putting all kinds of <laughs> emojis and all uh you got to ask good questions my dear friends ask me good questions ask me the kind of question that i just can't resist answering ask me that uh where are we 60 including france portugal denmark netherlands so many so many countries that all came to india to plunder india to plunder india you know people say india has been a poor nation and we all came here to whatever why do you think everybody was making a beeline to come to india did all of these european nations want to come to india to to do charity in india now geopolitics is all about self interest there was something they wanted from india india was the most prosperous and wealthy place on the surface of the planet that's why all these europeans once they discovered navigation and all that that's why they all started coming to india understand that okay vamshi says that the national wealth of the uk is 15 trillion dollars okay i have not uh, verified this but let's say it is so yeah there you go it makes sense yeah if if you look at all the land in australia for instance i think the total valuation would be around 4 or 5 or 6 maybe 6 or 7 trillion dollars the entire land of australia if you were to put a value on that based on real estate property prices maybe it's around that so the uk is much smaller so yeah maybe maybe this makes sense yeah so that's the difference between your annual gdp and your actual national wealth or, or valuation right other questions pranam says have you read a manga called berserk which has magnificent art it is one of the best fictions ever written unfortunately i have not read the manga called berserk i have heard about something called berserk it's about vikings is it vikings and stuff like that uh maybe 
but i haven't read it but i think uh, i've heard that manga is very interesting and lots of people are into it and uh, the natural uh, outcome of manga the is is anime right japanese anime that also seems to be very popular i no longer have the time to indulge indulge in these pleasures but yeah it's i'm sure it's great uh okay this is by ali i am persian from iran greetings sir greetings dear cousin <laughs> i know us in indians are cousins in some videos you claim that we came from india why it took us so much time to build an empire when we had knowledge of indians um see when we don't know exactly when the events of the battle of the 10 kings happened it was more than 10 kings it was a geopolitical struggle that has a long story behind it but it happened at the very beginning of the vedic age or maybe just before the vedic age because it's already written about in the rigveda now when did the vedic age happen there is no consensus but i would say it would have happened closer to 6000 bc when the great river saraswati was still in its prime so if it happened let's say hypothetically around 5000 bc which is 7000 years before today then the exodus of the various uh, clans rigvedic clans vedic clans that lost the battle would have happened around 7000 years ago and that's what what would have uh, spread indo european genetics and linguistics all across eurasia westwards out of the indian subcontinent so let's say the the parshu the parshwa people migrated out of india westwards into present day persia about 7000 or so years ago then maybe they would have settled down there and maybe it took time for them to become powerful enough and to develop this this uh, uh imperial outlook and uh, build an empire we know that there were dynasties that predate the achaemenid dynasty so there were dynasties that came before the achaemenid dynasty too they would have had their own kings and kingdoms and all that but until the achaemenid dynasty hakamanish dynasty hakshamanish dynasty it was never an empire persia never had an imperial outlook before that it takes times empires rise and fall if you look at the history of india empires rise and fall rise and fall rise and fall once typically every 500 or so years yeah so maybe there would have been significant dynasties before the achaemenid dynasty maybe there would have been empires uh, we know that we had the medians we know that you had uh, we know that there was the the marhashi kingdom in southern persia about 4 and 1/2000 or so years before today so they also the marhashi marhashi kingdom etc would also have been the predecessors of the achaemenid dynasty and so on so there must have been empires before the achaemenid dynasty but i don't think any of them were at the scale they had the kind of scale of conquest that the uh, achaemenid dynasty had and the achaemenid dynasty almost exclusively expanded westwards it was always west 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 fight the the greeks first then fight the romans and and conquer their territories so clearly there was a there was this uh policy of not trying to invade india always go westwards so that kind of tells you that there was some kind of understanding between india various indian kingdoms and the persians and of course we know that the persian empire the achaemenid empire used battle elephants now elef- elephants don't uh, uh are not found in persia right they are found in india so they would have acquired these war elephants from indians 
which tells you that there would have been good diplomatic relations between the Persian Empire and whichever empire was ruling India or whichever kingdoms were ruling India at the time. So yeah, it's it's uh, much of this, much of the events of the past uh, four, five thousand years are lost. Whatever we know is mainly through European eyes and sources, the Greeks and all, and, and all that. Yeah, because even when it comes to the Persian Empire, it was destroyed by this by uh, Alexander the Greek, this barbaric warlord who came and he burned down this beautiful, beautiful city of Parshapur, Persepolis. And the fire consumed the whole city. You can still see uh, traces of that fire today in the ruins of Persepolis. So yeah, most of what we understand about Persia and I India is through Western sources. And that's why we don't quite know the full history. So yeah, that's what I can say about this, but uh, great to hear from you, Ali. Okay, looks like we have not done any video chat today. So yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe next time, perhaps, perhaps. Um, yes, yes, Swapna, cheetahs are finally in. I'm very happy to see that. And may they grow and may they prosper and may they multiply. Um, what next? What next do we have? Uh, <laughs> I can see certain funny comments. Uh, what about this? Paul Chohan says, why is the Tamil and Cameroonian language so similar? Well, I don't know Tamil and neither do I know the Cameroonian language, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I hear all kinds of uh, claims that are made that uh, Tamil is similar to Korean, Tamil is similar to Japanese, Tamil is similar to the various African languages. Essentially, Tamil is similar to everything. So, some of that may actually be true. Okay, I'm not trying to trying to make fun of anything but I personally know nothing about this maybe someday I should learn Tamil and then maybe learn Korean maybe learn Cameroonian and then thereby expand my linguistic horizons and then maybe I will be able to answer such questions but thus far I am sadly not sufficiently informed about this Ah, <laughs> okay. Let me take this. I've answered some questions so many times, but anyway. Could you please tell us why the Indus Valley civilization got destroyed? Are there any theories? Have you seen any evidence of destruction? When you say destroyed, it means destruction. Do you see any evidence of bomb blasts? Do you see any evidence of buildings blown apart? Do you see any evidence of buildings hammered to pieces? Do you see any evidence of battles? Do you see any evidence of fire? Do you see any evidence of ashes in, on, on, in any of the archaeological strata? Do you see any evidence of, of, of uh, axes and arrowheads or swords? Do you see any evidence of dead bodies with sword wounds or, or arrow wounds or anything? You see none of that anywhere. Not a single evidence of that anywhere. So how can you say the Indus Valley civilization was destroyed? How do you make the claim? Think, think logically. There is no evidence for any destruction. So here's what happened. The great river Saraswati started drying out about 3-4,000 BC. The decline of this great river started around 6000 BC when the Indian monsoon started declining monotonically, which means very slow, very gradual decline. 
But this great river, the Saraswati, was a rain-fed, monsoon-fed river. In its upper reaches up north, it took in some glacial meltwater from the Himalayan glaciers and snows. But the majority of the water of this river came from the Indian monsoon. It was a massive river, almost entirely rain-fed. And because the monsoon declined gradually, but by about 1500 BC, it was a very steep decline of the monsoon. And that's why by around 1500 BC, the great river mostly disappeared. And some parts of it are still extant today. It is called the Gaggar Hakra River. So because of climate change, the entire climate of the region changed, got transformed. Look at Balochistan today. It's desert. Look at Western Pakistan, even parts of Sindh. It's deserted. Look at the Thar region of India, Rajasthan. It's desert. This was all green and lush in the old days. So because of climate change, because of the entire, because of the transformation and complete change of the Saptasindhu region, that's why many of these archaeological sites that were built around on the banks of the Saraswati had to be abandoned. India is a river valley civilization. The Indian subcontinent is full of rivers. It is so rich and fertile and full of rivers. The whole of Indian civilization is a river village civilization. All of India's great settlements and cities are built on the banks of rivers. Kashi. Think of Kashi. Think of the Ganga Valley region, the Yamuna Valley region, Narmada Valley region, the Godavari Valley region, the Kaveri Valley region. River after river after river, everything is built on the banks of rivers. So because of climate change, the Saraswati disappeared. And that's why. And the other rivers were also affected significantly. They, they must have been much stronger in the past, much more powerful and much more yeah, voluminous in the past. So because of climate change, over a period of many centuries, these settlements in the Saraswati Sindhu region were slowly and gradually abandoned. The people had to abandon them slowly and gradually over a course of multiple centuries. And these people, most of them went and settled down eastwards in the Ganga-Yamuna Valley region, in the Narmada Valley region, up north in northern India. Some of them would have even gone westwards, west of India. So that is what happened. There was no destruction whatsoever. It was a gradual abandonment of the region, especially the Saraswati Valley, because of the effects of climate change. That is what happened. And I have written about this. I have spoken about this. You can Google it, Abhijit Chavda, RN Invasion Theory, and you will find evidence and links to various papers that, that have uh, studied, the, uh, studied what happened here. Right? So that is what happened. It was not destroyed. It was gradually abandoned. And the people of the Saraswati Sindhu civilization, they still exist their descendants still exist. It is you and me and all Indians. The civilization never went anywhere. It still exists. So the so-called Indus Valley civilization or the so-called Harappan civilization is merely a small phase of Indian civilization which has a history, unbroken history of more than nine and a half thousand years. Indian civilization has an unbroken cultural continuum of almost 10,000 or more than that years. The best archaeological evidence is about, the earliest archaeological evidence goes back to about nine and a half thousand years before today. 
So Indian civilization has existed, existed continuously for nine and a half thousand years. And the Indus Valley phase was just one phase of the entire history. It's not some se separate civilization. It's not some separate people who disappeared. Please understand that. Okay. So we are uh, nearing the two-hour mark. So let's take some more questions. <laughs> uh, what did I say? What makes a question a good question? This is a good question. This is a good question. What makes a question a good question? It's something that by... It's a question by answer... If I answer the question, it will... Um, help a lot of people yeah so a question that whose answer helps a lot of people and enhances their knowledge and adds to the, to their knowledge that is a good question so the, and and it's some hopefully it's something that i have not answered 75 times before so that is my rough working definition of a good question typically it's something that catches my eye and i say i think that yes this is something i need to answer and this is something that will help everybody yeah so that's my my working definition of a good question. Yeah, right. Um, Peter Parker. No, 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 no. Somebody else. Somebody else. Um, Amrush Prince says, "Why were the American colonies colonists who were less populous and inferior?" able to defeat the British in the American Revolution, but India was not able to succeed. The American colonists were the same people as the British. They had the same language, the same know-how of battle and war tactics, and they had the same weapons. But they had the added advantage of having access to the resources of the North American continent. And they were able to use that and the enormous strategic advantage it gave them to fight the British. The British eventually had to depend on supplies coming in across the Atlantic. And so, you know, these are the factors that allowed the American colonists to defeat the British. It was it was not something that happened overnight. It took several years. But they, they were sufficiently well motivated. The motivation was that we will no longer have to pay taxes to the British crown. We will be able to uh, keep everything for ourselves. Whatever we are plundering out of this new land that we have captured. So yeah, uh, to understand this in proper detail, you have to actually study the, the uh, history of the American Revolutionary War. But overall, these are the factors that contributed to that. So yeah, this is a good question. See, history is about cause and effect. Understand this. History is about cause and effect. If you are a, if you want to truly study history properly and to truly understand history, you have to understand that history is about causality. It's about the causal chain, the cause and effect chain. Everything that exists today is the consequence of decisions that were taken 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 70,000 years ago. If a decision was taken differently at that time, the today that we are experiencing would not exist. There is a causal chain, a cause and effect chain that connects us to our earliest ancestors that existed 20 million years ago or maybe even before that. So the, the true study of history 
is the study of causality. Why do things happen and why do they happen the way they happen? That is the true study of history. It's history is not about memorizing dates and memorizing the names of kings, the lists of kings and what happened when. It's about understanding why these things happened. What caused this to happen? Why did this happen and not that happen? Why did this king succeed in conquering that place? And why did he want to conquer that place in the first place? You have to understand human nature, understand human psychology, understand causality. That is what the true study of history is about. All right, let's take a couple more questions. Someone says, can we bring back Ma Saraswati? Well, Ma Saraswati will come back if she wants to return. Who are we to force her to return? She left for some reason. Respect her, will ya? There are these various politicians who want to recreate the Saraswati by diverting God knows what. Come on, stop it. The river disappeared for a reason. If she wants to reappear, if you consider her to be a goddess, if you consider the river to be a manifestation of the great divine Ma Saraswati, then you have to respect her wishes and stop trying to re-engineer the river back into life. It is a natural phenomenon. Yeah, The river disappeared. Maybe it will reappear someday in the future when the time is right. Right. What else do we have? Do we have other interesting questions? I am sure there are thousands of interesting questions. <laughs> uh, All I know so says, so what you believe India's approach to be like? About what, my dear friend? What's the question? <laughs> Ask a good question, man. Give some context. What should India's be, approach be about what? About rock and roll? About uh, the art of playing tabla? About hockey? About cricket? About scuba diving? What are you talking about, sir? Please give some context. So this is an example of a bad question, unfortunately. I don't mean to... to demean anybody but yeah there you go okay 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 let's take some good question some interesting question now some people are trolling me by asking the repeated same thing anyway mm. uh, what the languages do you know uh i know multiple languages uh, the interesting ones i know some sanskrit i know some latin i know I know French and I know a bunch of various, I, I understand bits and pieces and parts of various uh, Western European languages, especially Romance languages that are descendants of Latin. I I know bits and pieces of lots of languages, you know. Yeah, so it kind of helps sometimes, yeah. Okay, let's take one final question for today. Savan, thank you very much, sir. Uh, what do we have? What do we have? Mesopotamia, etc. We have spoken about that. Um, uh, let's see. Let's see. Do we have anything that I can take as the last question? Um, Himanshu says, South Indian kingdoms used to have maritime relationship with Rome. Why is it considered that Vasco da Gama found the maritime route to India? It is the Europeans who make the claim. The entire world history is written from an Occidentalist, Eurocentric perspective. Yeah. That's not the, this, this is not true. I mean, 
the 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 claim that vasco da gama discovered the maritime route to india is bullshit it's nonsense indians knew these routes for the longest time yeah maybe it was the first european in the past whatever 500 years to rediscover the route to india but he we don't have to uh we don't have to see the world through their lenses and their eyes india had maritime relations with here's here's an interesting tidbit in case you you haven't already heard it from me uh if you look at the australian the native australian population the so called aboriginal australian population approximately if you look at the statistical entirety of the native australian population about 10% of their genetics has comes from india we know archaeologists know and geneticists know that about 5000 years before today there was a migration from from india into australia and those indians who went there left behind their genetic imprint it is still found today approximately 10% of native australian genetics are of indian origin so indians traveled to australia by sea 5000 years ago so indians knew how to make incredibly difficult and long journeys by sea indians uh, we know that zebu cattle entered egypt uh, entered africa at least 4000 years before today and india had trade relations with egypt with uh, greece with rome for the longest time indian ships used to go there so um, india is the oldest maritime civilization in the world india was a great maritime civilization india had a great maritime tradition indians were the finest ship builders in the world you can see uh, sculptures on the walls of the angkor wat temple in uh, cambodia cambodia which show indian ships the rigveda mentions ships with 100 oars yeah so understand this india is the had an incredibly rich and great maritime history today we are taught that indians had this thing that if you cross the ocean then you 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 yeah, i don't know you are cursed or something that there is something that must have occurred very recently our ancestors used to go everywhere in the world by sea by ship yeah so that's the deal that is the deal my dear friends my dear friends that's the deal now do we have one last question i can take am i proud of the denisovan ancestry that distinguishes indians from all non non africans could genomic research in andaman islanders change something significant about human evolution uh, do indians have denisovan ancestry i'm not sure in case we have it we should be proud of it in case we don't have it we should still be proud of it we should be proud of whatever ancestry we have okay be proud of who you are be proud of your ancestry be proud of your ancestors who have done so much to ensure that you are here uh genetic in, uh, research in andaman islanders it will definitely uh, help us understand the history and the story of humanity better because they are a relic population an isolated population they've been isolated isolated for 30000 plus years so yeah it's interesting but we should treat them with compassion they are still essentially a stone age people we should treat them with compassion and with dignity and with humanity we should not use them as guinea pigs and test subjects which is what europeans have always tended to do we are not europeans we are indians we are a separate civilization we have our own values and we should use that anyhow that brings me to the end of today's session great fun great fun doing this live chat session once again thank you to everybody who asked questions apologies to those of you who have asked so many questions and i could not take them 
I can only take 20, 30 questions in these two hours. So apologies to those of you whose question I did not either see or did not take. I appreciate every single one of you. I appreciate your viewership. I appreciate the fact that you trust me and ask me questions. And we will do this again. This was fun again. So let's do a few live chat questions uh, sessions again in the future. So uh, until then, thank you very much. I will see you in tomorrow's session, which is going to be about geopolitics and history, mostly and current affairs. Until then, take care and good night. See you in the next episode.